Hi, I'm Katerina Fake, and welcome to Ingenious, a podcast with some of the world's most brilliant, inspiring, and visionary people. Like the groundbreaking film, theater, and opera director, Peter Sellers, who is paying a visit to my home in San Francisco today. That piece, I have been thinking about it nonstop since. We've never met, and he's just greeted me with the longest, warmest hug. (laughs) I know that when there's a great work of art, I'm still thinking about it for days. Oh yeah, no, the seed is planted. Peter's here on the morning after an unforgettable opera he's directed with the San Francisco Symphony, a collaboration with his old friend, the legendary Finnish conductor, Essa Pekka Salonen, who will also be joining us here at the house in a few minutes. No, I mean, the emotion, that's full, that music is just tons and tidal waves. You don't need to know a thing about opera or classical music to appreciate these phenomenal artists at the top of their game. Come along for the ride as we get to know each other and talk about art and war and technology and education in these crazy times we're living in. It was a thrilling and wonderfully meandering conversation, and it started with Peter casually asking, as with many hellos, if I'm from the Bay Area. No, no. I'm from Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Oh, stop, 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 stop. Where, oh, you, where, 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 what? Allison Park. Oh, stop it. Where are you Squirrel from? Squirrel Hill. Oh, get out. Really? Yeah. And I have not been to, I have not been to Pittsburgh since I was 16. It's a little bit of a lie because um, the Andy Warhol Museum, the first yes. director, Mark Francis, yes. brought me to Pittsburgh. And of course, I worked with Andy on the end of his life. We were making the Andy Warhol robot because he wanted to have a robot of himself that could do the talk shows and also be be itself an exhibit. So I was the director of the Andy Warhol Robot Project. Project. And because, of course, he's from Pittsburgh, too. (laughs) Pittsburgh has Martha Graham, Andy Warhol, and Gertrude Stein. And, of course, present company. (laughs) Nothing like a guest with the best laugh. So if you didn't know who Peter Sellers was five minutes ago, that's a fitting introduction, collaborating with Andy Warhol on an Andy Warhol robot. For the last 40 years, Peter Sellers has been among the most innovative, eclectic, and prolific directors in Western theater. And he's now a distinguished professor at UCLA. But he talks about the cultural life of Pittsburgh with reverence. That's also a good introduction to the way he sees the world. And the way I do, too. And a whole... Natural History Museum with, you know, every frog, lizard, salamander, etc. And in the same building, a contemporary art museum. Mm-hmm. In the same building, the library. In the same building, the concert hall. And in the same building, an architecture museum. Yeah. We were wired to be interdisciplinary because that's what the building was. It was it's a, Connected. It's a beautiful city. Yeah. Yeah. Really. This is a Esapek is here. He and Peter Sellers have collaborated for the last 30 years. Esapeka is now the music director of the San Francisco Symphony. He was the electrifying music director of the L.A. Phil for 17 years, among many credits that make him one of the great maestros of our time. He's also known for introducing technology into his performances, working with roboticists and creating VR and AI projects with orchestras. We're thrilled to have him back in California. Peter is here already. Okay. Esa and I have met on multiple occasions. I spend lots of time in Finland. But this is an especially important occasion. Last night's opera, called Adriana Mater, was written by Kaya Sariaho, a beloved Finnish composer and close friend of these two. 
Sadly, she passed away just a week before this performance of brain cancer. Yeah, I mean, the timing is unfortunate. This is a conversation about ingenuity, collaboration, an amazing work of art, with two legendary artists who are deeply respectful of each other. I've admired your work for a number of years. <laughs> but first, a few remarks from Peter Sellers at Davies Symphony Hall about their dear friend and collaborator, Kaya Sariaho. So, welcome to Adriana Mater. Peter says hers was a feminine voice that we had never had before in the male-dominated world of classical music. He didn't mention it, but Kaya dedicated Adriana Mater to Peter Sellers, who she says was her inspiration to write opera. This is a very uh, emotional night for most of us here because Kaya Sariaho passed away on Friday morning in Paris in the manner, actually, of her music, which is moving from one world to another. The famous image, which is so beautiful, is when she was, you know, five and six years old, she would ask her mother to turn the volume down on the pillow at night because she kept hearing music all night and she couldn't sleep. Essa Pekka says in Finland, Kaya was somebody who would be stopped on the streets of Helsinki. People would tell her how much they loved her music. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, she was recognized on the streets and in taxis and on trains and so on. Yeah, but that was an amazing piece last night. I had not heard anything by her previously, so this was a kind of a new experience for me and amazing. Good place to start, I would say. Adriana Mater opened in 2006, but is a story for all time. Here is a brief excerpt of a recording from the premiere at L'Obra Bastille in Paris. Its setting is a modern war in an unnamed country. At the time, it evoked the Bosnian War of the 1990s. It's a haunting story of a woman raped by a soldier from her own community. Since then, we've become sharply attuned to issues of violence against women, the dangers of guns in our communities, and we're living once again in times of war. When it was premiered 17 years ago, the global situation was different, mm -hmm. and our expectations about the future were different, and we just felt that, okay, the Balkan war is over, and maybe that was the last great, great crisis. Mm. And therefore, you know, the story of this opera was still powerful and moving, but people felt that it's about somebody else. It's not us, it's somebody else's problem. However, now, when we look around, we realize that we are basically living in that opera. But from the Finnish perspective, of course, the war is not an abstract concept, it's, it's close. And this kind of story could be taking place every, every day, nearby. I was really amazed when I you know, was spending more time in Finland to realize how prepared the Finns are for war. There is a long history, obviously, and we share more than 1,000 kilometers of border with Russia, and um, historically it's been a challenge. So when the rest of Europe started 
winding their defenses and armies and so on, the Finns joined the rhetoric in a, in a funny way. So, yes, maybe we are entering a, a new peaceful era and so on, and commerce and trade will prevent crisis from happening. But, of course, meanwhile, they were still developing the defenses and the army and so on. And as you might have read, Helsinki is basically... They have dug tunnels under Helsinki and basically everybody living in the city could get shelter if there's a crisis and so on. And so it's a totally different approach from, for instance, Sweden, where they thought, okay, that's it, done. And also they haven't had a war in their territory since 1809. Yeah. Finland fought two wars not that long ago. I mean, it really is amazing. Certainly you've been in the parking garages and I was like, why is the parking garage keep on going down and down and down and down and down? And it's because they're also bomb shelters. They're way deep under the ground. The whole, I mean, and then there's like kind of passages here and there. So it really is under the city. And wasn't the president actually, Salo he was saying kind of right after the invasion of Ukraine, wow, we better shore up our bomb shelters because we only have room for 4 million, which was I think the population when they were built. We've got an extra million and a half. A law was passed in, after the Second World War that if you build a building that has more than X number of units, I, I can't remember how, how many, there has to be a bomb shelter type of space. And in fact, Kaya's father, was his business was selling equipment for bomb shelters in Finland. Really? Yeah. And Kaya was the president of this company at some point. When, really? Yeah, which <laughs> is very hard to imagine. But after her father passed away, then they were like restructuring and so on. So Kaya was the president of the company. Amazing. I mean, she seems like a remarkable woman. And this I, this was phenomenal, the performance last night in Adriana Mutter. And I thought that something which you had said in your introduction, actually, Peter, that only a woman could write. And obviously that was so true. Would you be able to... In your words, tell the story briefly of the opera. Briefly, the first scene is a woman leaning out of her second floor window, singing in the middle of the night about her real voice, her real skin, her heart, have been hidden her whole life. And she would like to reveal them at night while the city is sleeping. Down in the street, there's a drunk guy who we gradually figured out she threw out of the house maybe a month or two ago. She said, get out of here. And he's come back. And he says, no, you don't know me. Please let me in. Give me another chance. I'm, you know, and she says, I do know you. That's why I'm not letting you in. Second scene, the war has begun. He's the head of the local militia. You know, ragtag, army surplus, people with guns, suddenly all over the neighborhood. He said, I have to come in. I'm not, he's pounding on the door. Let me in. I've got to go up to the roof to survey the neighborhood. And she says, well, wait a minute. You know, there's many higher buildings in this neighborhood that you could see from. Why do you need to come into my house? And he keeps pounding. She says, the war will not enter this house. And he said, oh, yeah, right. And there's this incredible aria 
The war is like a dust. It's this dust that's inside everything. It touches everything. It covers everything. You're breathing it in. And even as you're breathing it in, you're intoxicated by its incredible power like a drug. Suddenly you're you're dependent on it. Suddenly you want more of it. Suddenly everything becomes thinking in war terms. And she says, you and your thugs and your murderers can stay out of here. I don't need you. And he said, yeah, but right now, the country needs us. The country needs all the thugs to do the dirty work, to do the violence, so you can keep your hands clean. Mm. I'm coming in your house. And she says, you are not. And he says, I'm coming in whether you want to or not. And he he bangs down the door and rapes her. That's the second scene. The third scene is a couple months later and she has decided to keep the child. And she's with her sister. Her sister's having incredible dreams of the war, which are wild. And it's really wonderful that's showing the inner inner worlds. Inner worlds of which people. Are all converging all the time. This young woman is a child is growing in her. As Mrs. Pekka mentions, I mean the first image that Kai had of this opera was the image of being a mother and hearing a second heartbeat in your own body. That was a remarkable thing. The heartbeat, the second heart, you hear on the first ultrasound. So that experience, and that was actually when Kaya was expecting her second child, Aliza, who happened to be our assistant in this production. She's a conductor. So it was all as if there was some kind of bigger plan going on. So that heartbeat permeates everything in the score. It's sometimes it's, it's hidden, you know, it's deepest down in the low register, you know, some kind of pizzicato in the double bass or, or, or something like that. And sometimes it's in the very highest range with the piccolo and, and they go like, tira, 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 tira. Because mm. of course the, on the ultrasound, the little heartbeat is very fast. And you know, the thing is that Kaya is one of the first composers who uses the experience of carrying a child in music. And obviously, this rules out most of male composers. Yes. So, <laughs> so, so she entered a territory that belongs to women in her music. And um, without making a big statement, like she was not out there on the barricades and, and waving any kind of flags because she, that was not her personality. But in this, the, this opera really is about the experience of becoming a mother and, and what it means, A, to give birth, but also to, to bring up a young person and then to let go. Yes. Which is also a very demanding part of parenthood, and especially motherhood. Many mothers find that more difficult than the first two. The birth. The birth. Birth is easy in comparison to see the child actually becoming his or her her own person and kind of starting to make decisions, Mm -hmm. which this opera is obviously about. So that is, of course, the second half of the opera is 18 years later. This child she's carrying and we're only hearing as a second heartbeat is a young man. And the second act begins with this shock 
at the age of 18, he's just learned that his dad is not a war hero, but is in fact a war criminal and is still alive, didn't die a hero's death. And so his mother kept that from him for 18 years and he's furious. And then we learned that this guy is suddenly appearing back in town who everyone thought had gone away. And the young man says, I'm going to go kill him. And he gets himself an automatic weapon. And the two women, his mother and her sister, are living with a young man with a weapon and who openly says, I'm going to go out and murder him. So we have this image that you know is all over the place right now of young people with weapons. We had, the, we had this very visceral reaction when... He picked up the gun. We both went, ugh, like, you know, some part of us. Yeah, you know, no, you see somebody it's... pick up a weapon. When we did this piece 20 years ago, people thought, oh, that's just too much. And, of course, now it's still too much, but it's what we're, it's the reality that is surrounding us mm-hmm. everywhere in the world. Yes. What, how do you talk to a young man who has purchased an automatic weapon yeah. and feels betrayed and lied to by everyone and everything? Those are real questions right now. And he tracks down his dad. It turns out his dad is, you know, basically an unhoused person sleeping in the street, in the park, lying on the pavement, which is not what he thought he would find when he tracked down his dad. And he starts to try and kill him. And then finally stops and says, well, don't you even want to turn around and see what your son looks like? And the old man says, well, I'll turn it around if you want, but I'm blind. I can't see anything anymore. I will never know what you look like, but would you let me touch your face? And that is so intense. And the young man not only doesn't shoot his father, he's running away. He goes back to his mother in the final scene and says, I'm sorry, I couldn't kill. I couldn't kill him. He deserves to die, but I couldn't kill him. And then finally, his mother says, I've waited 18 years to know if I raised a monster or a human being, and thank God you're a human being. And thank God you couldn't kill him. Mm-hmm. And thank God you're, you grew up surrounded by violence and you chose the other way. And not only, you know, I thought I wanted revenge too, but actually, I really don't want it. I just don't want it. And we're saved. And that's an incredible moment where Kaya writes music that is so transcendent. You just, you can't believe it. And I think, you know, so much music is about, you know, the thrill of violence and the thrill of gore and the thrill of the attack and the thrill of the destruction and the forest fires and the burning and the explosions. Mm -hmm. And Kaya really found a way to write music that says what what is the feeling when somebody does something good yeah. and what are the arts of peace mm-hmm. we know the arts of war mm-hmm. yes. the arts of war are pretty clear yes. but what what would the arts of peace involve yeah. which are in fact a more intense victory and a more intense battle and harder to harder to get to. Right. And so the music is about the struggle 
you know, as Dorothy Day used to say, you know, of like, <laughs> she used to pray, Lord, make it a little easier to do the right thing. <laughs> In fact, it's really hard. <laughs> so that's what the piece is about. And that's the scope of it. And that's, again, where careful words of just guiding you through this super intense abyss quietly. And and it's so sane. Mm-hmm. So you, this premiered in 2006. Yep. And then you have, you worked on it, both of you, together? Yes. Yeah, that was the, the world premiere took place in Paris. Okay. At the Paris Opera in 2006. Um, so what's it like collaborating with Peter? I'm leaving the room. <laughs> <laughs> well, Let him talk, okay. <laughs> we have done lots of things together over the years. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the first one was the most massive one ever, which was the, the only opera by Olivier Messiaen called St. Francis. That we did at the Salzburg Festival in... 1992, was it? Two. Two, yeah. So I give you a little example how Peter works. Now, I received the scores of that opera, and it came in eight volumes, um, like a couple of inches thick, each one. And and I started leafing through them. I I was in Finland at the time, and, and I thought, I'll take a week or two and plow through this. And then, like, halfway through, I had gone through, like, 1300 pages of score I I thought no this is not an opera this is just some kind of <laughs> torture uh, and it's an oratory and there's no theater no drama in it and we shouldn't do it so I called Peter and he said come on over and let's have lunch and talk about it in LA so I flew to LA and then we had lunch somewhere I can't remember where, where it was and after that lunch he had convinced me that not only is it possible to do, but it's the best thing ever, and that <laughs> will change our lives, and it, it will be something to tell your grandchildren about. And so he has that gift. I would say the world is very fortunate that he's not an evil politician, because he, he could do a lot, a lot of harm. <laughs> but, you know, working with him, it's fantastic to see him work with singers and actors who find things in in themselves that they didn't necessarily know they had. And I've witnessed this so many times, and but it's still a miracle. Well, like most extroverts, of course, I'm very shy. <laughs> that, 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 that's the reality. <laughs> and so, so, you know, in fact, I'm super quiet and private most of the time. It's just when I'm working, that's not helpful to anybody. And... The job is how can you help? Working with Esapeka, one of the most exciting things is Esapeka is also super quiet Hmm. and then suddenly unleashes a lightning storm. (laughs) But you go, wait a minute, where did that come from? (laughs) This is quiet guy (laughs) just kind of staring randomly out the window from time to time. And then suddenly... This elemental force explodes in the room. And you just say, that came from where? Also, one of the biggest things you're dealing with in terms of performers, but I would say more generally in terms of human beings, is most people are scared. Most people are frightened of their actual powers, of actually taking responsibility, of actually stepping forward, and actually of doing what needs to be done. 
and particularly when what needs to be done in our lifetime is complicated. Esabeka has this unbelievable gift, unbelievable clarity of we're going to do this and we're going to do it now and it goes this way. <laughs> and it's super complicated because, of course, one of the reasons to do a Messian six-hour piece with Esapeka is most people are terrified of it. And Esapeka has this incredible way. He steps on that conductor's stand and starts moving his arms and says, it's simple. It just goes like this. And suddenly you go, oh, oh, my God, we could do this. <laughs> and we couldn't do it exactly three seconds ago. <laughs> and suddenly you feel you understand it. And EP takes super complex structures and renders them suddenly visible, visceral. You feel them in your body. And he, when he conducts, he conducts mostly the hardest music ever written mm -hmm. with total fearlessness and with an atmosphere of relaxed pleasure, <laughs> which is what actually releases the lightning storm <laughs> because it's not until people are relaxed that they can actually be effective. And it's not till people actually feel free that suddenly the power that's released is incredible. And so Esapeka is kind of the great liberator. How do we get more people to want to be artists? You know, for me, uh, it's one of the things I don't teach making art ever. Mm -hmm. Because for me, being an artist is you got to find your own path. You don't have the same path as anyone else. And you have to find your own voice. You have to find your own direction. You've got to find your own gift. So finding yourself, finding your way, finding your path. You start with, quite often, with, with a dogma. Because that's how young people are. I was, at least. I wanted to know what is right and what is wrong. And of course, the modernists, post-war modernists, offered you the answer. If you do this, that's okay. If you do that, that's wrong. And of course, as a young person, it's you want to do the right thing. I still want to do the right thing, but, but I, I know that art is not necessarily a trial. <laughs> so you don't have to win. It's not like presenting a chain of evidence. Proving yourself, following the rules. Yeah. Being correct. And then you realize that the first important question is, says who? But I think young people often need this kind of framework to start with, because if the world is being presented to you as completely open, that every possible option is open to you, then it's, it's too demanding, it's too bewildering. One of the things I did want to talk about, actually, is how innovative both of you are, my background is technology. My background is actually art. I'm an artist first, and then I'm um, also an accidental technologist. And I was also very interested in a lot of your work introduces new technologies into performance in a way that I think is brilliant and, and uh, uses the technology well, because it doesn't always happen that that is the case. Can you talk a little bit about this? I was thinking of, because I know that you were working with AI in some capacity. Technology, I'm just fascinated by the idea of technology being an extension of our expression. But I'm not particularly interested in technology for the sake of 
technology. Like bells, whistles. Uh, yeah, I'm not yeah. usually touched by... I've been watching a lot of VR and over the years, mostly the idea of having a 360 view and so on is in itself means nothing. But as means and a tool to enhance the experience and maybe extend the, the physical limitations of a performer, this becomes interesting. And also, you know, if you look at the history of music and the history of the performing arts and so on, Technology has always influenced the actual content and the actual expression, and vice versa. Also, artists sometimes lead the way. They pose questions, and technology has to kind of react to them or answer the questions. And so it's not like two separate things. Mm -hmm. They are in constant dialogue, discourse, and we never thought about that, but this happens to be the case. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that your pioneering technical work was, of course, because you're an artist. So, you know, those things <laughs> do flow I because... No, but I mean, <laughs> it, no, the, the reality is, you know, again, what does it mean to imagine something that nobody's seen yet? And that's the job description we wake up to every morning, you know? And so that is the job description we're all working with. Yes. And meanwhile... For me, I think in our generation, we've grown up with technology in the right place in the sense of it's like a pencil. Sure. That's one of the things that I struggle with, you know, working in this world is that you, it's usually often technology in search of a problem to solve. And they're, they foreground the technology itself in everything that they do. And then they're trying to find a use for it. You see that with AI, that's what's going on right now with this enormous buzz around AI and everybody trying to figure out what the hell do we use this for? Literally, like they, they have kind of like invented a technology and then they're trying to graft a use case onto it after the fact instead of going the opposite way, which is finding a need or a requirement and then figuring out what tools you need to try to solve that problem. And for me, I always try to suggest my students go the opposite direction because look around and there's plenty that needs to be done. <laughs> you, like yeah. said, could... With the tools that you have, right. and, and you don't need just start, that. just yeah. start, right? Yeah. As always, yeah. the the, yeah. the the what is what are the instructions? Start, <laughs> like begin. That's the first instruction, mm-hmm. and inevitably, you'll start finding things. Mm-hmm. It's just necessary to begin and begin with something that actually needs to be done. And as we talk about beginnings, our conversation comes to an end. Yeah. Don't get up. I am just going to s- step down the stairs. And I, we'll see each other, like... We'll see each other again. You know. Yes, yeah, um, Well, as Lorca used to say, see you suddenly. See you suddenly. It feels appropriate that Peter Sellers leaves me with the words of a poet, Federico Garcia Lorca. How lucky his students are at UCLA, where Peter teaches art and social action and art as moral action. Great pleasure. Thanks for coming to our house. Yes. And meanwhile, Esapeka Salonen lingers for coffee and the microphone goes off. He's got an unbelievable schedule of performances here in San Francisco and around the world. I left our time with the two of them going online to watch and listen to more of their performances together. And I came across this quote by Peter, going back to the Greeks who invented opera. Peter says, the Greeks realized you had to tell stories that were tragic, that were unbearable. You need to face those things with music, 
poetry, dance, and beauty, because that's the only way we can deal with this stuff. And so opera is this urgent life support system, this urgent maintenance system for democracy. So in these times, when what needs to be done on Earth is going to take every bit of strength and compassion we can find, I am grateful that the extraordinary opera Adriana Mater brought us all together and grateful for this conversation. I'm Katerina Fake of YesVC, and this is Ingenious. You can also find me on LinkedIn. We've created an Ingenious newsletter on Substack with bonus content and reading around each episode. Both links are in our show bio and description of this episode. See you suddenly.